This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Phoenix. John Le Carre. 50s science horror films. And The Giant of Kandahar. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The columns and the plinths, the fog and the lyre, and the beep, beep, beep of digital cash registers binging welcome us to a common mythology hut with a t-shirt justification kiosk in it. And uh, also, I think Peter Frampton's wandering around here, not just because he's a living myth, but also because we're going to try and do a little gaming as we occasionally do. Welcome back to 2021. Welcome back to the podcast. And uh, here we are, Robin. Um, I guess since it's a new beginning, we should set everything on fire, right? That's what people do. Right. And, and it's a new beginning for us. We're recording. This is our first actual record in 2021. So if the last couple of episodes sounded like things were normal. Uh, that's because we recorded them in 2020, which is now starting to seem like the normal year. Let's hope things are totally normal for people yeah. by the time this drops in 10 days. So I thought that we would talk about the phoenix, the mythological creature, uh, the phoenix, because I was looking at different images from uh, medieval manuscripts a while back, as one does. And uh, I spotted a particular image that I thought was hilarious and therefore uh, had to be on a shirt because, of course, we have... Uh, the uh, Ken and Robin merch store, tpublic.com. And we uh, periodically uh, release a shirt and then retroactively justify it in a t-shirt justification hunt to explain why it's somehow associated with the podcast. And this particular Phoenix, just he's looking very forlorn. It looks like he's in some sort of bowl or vessel of some kind. That's There's fire inside the vessel. There's fire outside the vessel. And his expression very much says, Oh, no, not this again, which, in fact, is the caption on the shirt. Right. Or the mug. Uh, I think this is particularly suitable for a kind of uh, uh, subtweeting your coworkers with uh, in your Zoom meetings. You can hold it up to the camera. So we have the shirt. We have uh, the idea of the Phoenix in mythology. And I thought also this would be an interesting challenge because as mythological creatures go, the uh, gaming use of the phoenix is not necessarily super immediately apparent because traditionally the phoenix 
although it is magical or it sort of becomes magical later in its uh, uh, history. And we'll get into that in a sec. It's not a creature that you traditionally have a fight with. No. You know, the rock, the much bigger bird. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a fighting bird, but the magic ability of the Phoenix to die and then be uh, reborn either in uh, fire, which uh, is a better visual or just from its ashes um, wasn't originally unclear is, uh, is something that we're going to have to work a bit more in order to create sort of Phoenix related uh, plot hooks. So, Ken, what comes to mind uh, when you uh, think of uh, the Phoenix? Well, I mean, to begin with, you think of, as you say, fire and rebirth. And uh, it is something of a surprise when you dig into the old Phoenix to realize that those are both fairly late additions to the Phoenix myth. Uh, it begins just as a legendarily long-lived bird, for some reason. Our buddy, the poet Hesiod, in the circa 700 B.C., just gives it as a sort of a, a byword for uh, incredibly long life. Yes, it, it outlives nine ravens. That's how long it lives. And yes. this was in a time when ravens lived much longer than they do today because of better nutrition. <laughs> yeah, so not much magical about that. I think there are probably parrots who outlive nine ravens. And there is, in fact, a fun theory that I will get to when we talk about Herodotus, which I'm about to do. Herodotus as he was wont to do when he was wandering around uh, the world, would ask people about their whack local legends. And a different guy, Hecateus, between uh, Hesiod and Herodotus, had written a lengthy description of the phoenix in Egypt. So when Herodotus gets to Egypt, uh, and again, Egypt is probably in Hecateus's time just a, a synecdoche for just a place where wild stuff happens, not that it was, you know, specifically phoenixes are here. Herodotus gets to Egypt and he asks the priests and they say, well, we've got the Bennu and they may have pronounced it Wani, which sounded like Phoenix. So <laughs> yeah, that sounds a lot like Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, well, it sounds well, one closer. of the possible derivations of Phoenix is that it could just mean Phoenician bird. Right. Um, and it could be related to the, the deep red or purple dyes that the Phoenicians used, implying that it is a red or purple bird. Right. And uh, it might also come from the word phoenix, uh, which means palm tree, because it might live in a land of palm trees or roost in a land of palm trees. Who can say? Anyhow, uh, the Egyptians say, well, we have this sacred bird of Osiris that dies, and then the new uh, Osiris bird shows up. Maybe that's a phoenix. And Herodotus says, tell me more. And they say, well, from Arabia, the newborn phoenix brings the old dead phoenix in a giant ball of myrrh and leaves it off at the temple of, of Ammon-Ra in Heliopolis, uh, the city of the sun, to be uh, venerated by the Egyptian priests. And Herodotus says, all right, pull the other one. That's nonsense. Yeah. Yes, to his credit, Herodotus says, oh, I don't think this is actually a know. thing, but I'm going to write it down. Yes, because that was his mission in life, was to make good gaming material. He was a great man. Um, but there are, of course, Australian anthropologists who theorize that birds of paradise from uh, Australia, the South Pacific, Indonesia, wherever, were captured or killed, and their insanely bright and beautiful feathers were then traded up the uh, trade routes from the farthest reaches of the ancient world into Egypt. Uh, and in order to keep them intact and pretty on the trip, they would be packed in something preservative like myrrh. And so the notion is that the trade in bird of paradise feathers packed in myrrh led to the 
game of telephone that got the priests of Heliopolis to say, oh yeah, phoenixes, they show up here every 500 years. Uh, I mean, not right now, today. No, uh, you just missed it. I'm sorry. Sorry, Herodotus. But that's one place the phoenix might have come from. Other people just say, it's a bird because it's a solar myth, you idiots. That's what they're talking about. That's why he's in the Temple of the Sun. Birds live in the sky. Sun lives in the sky. Problem solved. But right. either way, Herodotus then dumps it into the mainstream of uh, classical culture. And so you get uh, Pliny talking out his arm about phoenixes. Uh, Tacitus claims that a phoenix showed up in the court of Claudius. So if you're, you know, checking by nine ravens or 500 years, start from AD 43, because that's when we know that there was a phoenix sighting um, and then work backwards and forwards from there. And then finally, a poet named Lactantius takes the notion of fire and the notion of a phoenix that dies, and then another phoenix is immediately born, possibly as a maggot or a worm from the corpse of the old phoenix, and says, isn't it much less gross if the phoenix just burns in a funeral pyre and then is reborn from the ashes of the old phoenix? Isn't that nicer? Lactantius was a Christian. He may have even been thinking... And it will make a lovely allegory for a little person I like to call <laughs> Jesus. Yes. And and in, in the middle there, there's also a, a, a poem, I think, from Persia that suggests that the phoenix, rather than having a clock, rather than dying every uh, 500 years on the reg and, and being reborn, is that it kills itself in order to guilt trip wrongdoers uh, <laughs> and then is reborn. Uh, right. So... Uh, now, I'm not sure exactly why wrongdoers are then shamed by the fact that the phoenix has offed itself, especially since they know it's coming back. But right. uh, the, the mechanics of that seem vague, frankly. If they if they were super, you know, susceptible to being guilted by random birds, you'd think they wouldn't have the temerity to be criminals in the first place. Yes, exactly. Right. So there's a lot uh, there's a lot of problems with that. But as I mentioned, the glaring Christian allegory takes over and uh, makes sure that the Phoenix becomes super popular throughout medieval and then into modern Western lore. Dante uh, mentions the Phoenix uh, in great detail and uh, Shakespeare mentions it in Henry VIII. And of course you've got your Phoenixes in Arizona and in the uh, crest of both San Francisco and the University of Chicago, both referring to places that got burned down and came back just as good the next time. And uh, culminating, as with all great art, in Conan the Barbarian, uh, who has a phoenix on his sword in the short story, The Phoenix on the Sword, implying that Conan, of course, will always be reborn into a new, not a not like a Elric reborn, but reborn in the sense of no longer a barbarian, now a king. He's yes. he changes his form as he goes through his life. He goes from being Arnold to Jason Momoa to whoever. To whoever. And also, uh, if we were going to come up with a plot hook about what happens when you uh, eat the phoenix before it is reborn, uh, Neil Gaiman beat us to it. And J.K. Rowling has a, a, a phoenix in her Harry Potter stories. But our job is to somehow make the phoenix uh, fun and interesting and a, a big point uh, in a, a gaming context. And uh, the I think the easiest way to do that is to swipe a thing that was done on Dark Shadows, which is that uh, you could have a phoenix in human form. And so uh, one of the characters on that uh, long-running show, probably after three years of very slow exposition, was somehow revealed to be a phoenix. Um, and uh, so the question is, uh, if you are uh, searching for someone who uh, is 
uh, continually reborn. And it could even be like a cool uh, power in a supernatural or supers game where you're effectively immortal. And uh, sometimes it's a, it can be useful even, right? You could come up with a cool either hero or supervillain whose thing is that, uh, yep, when they die, they burst into flame. And then later they come back and the, the bursting into flame part, you can make that useful, right? If you're charging a, uh, a, a group of bad guys and they shoot you, you just jump on them and, uh, and you can uh, have a nice little fireball when you go. That could be a fun thing. Yeah. Or it can be a thing where you've killed the bad guy and then his uh, cultists take away the body and burn it. And then the new bad guy resurrects out of the fire that you don't even know he's the Phoenix. When you shot him, you just thought he was a mysterious bad guy alchemist. And then nope, sure enough, he can be reborn in the fire because he has uh, the, the Phoenix within him. Either he uh, ate uh, a Phoenix egg once, or he's alchemically created Phoenix blood and replaced his own blood. Or as uh, you say, he's just the, the human Phoenix and everyone enjoys him because that's what he is. I, I think another possibility is that the Phoenix can become a, uh, rather than just one guy, can become a secret society, uh, one that keeps getting put down either by the righteous authorities with fire, but like Hydra, it grows back. And so, you know, uh, you can have, um, uh, you know, you know, burn us out and we will merely be reborn as their hydra e methodology. And then, you know, the, the secret society of Phoenix, which might go back to ancient alchemists, uh, or even Egyptian magic, because of course the Egyptians have that old temple of the Phoenix back in the day, and they're out there causing problems for our heroes. Right. Uh, if you have a Phoenix who arrives on schedule at a certain place, say a fire or sun temple every 500 years, uh, you would of course have the scenario where you're waiting for the Phoenix to show up. And guess what? Uh, the bad guys are trying to uh, capture it because if they can somehow prevent uh, the Phoenix from uh, reaching the special brazier that it lands on and then immolates and is reborn, well, that's going to throw the, the cosmic balance out of whack. That's going to do something uh, to the power of the sun and power of the sky. So uh, if the uh, uh, magical villains want to uh, usher in a great darkness, uh, they might want to kidnap the phoenix and keep it alive. Uh, and so your uh, job is, first of all, to stop them from doing that at the uh, solar temple. And guess what? That's probably act one of the scenario. And uh, and somehow uh, they get away with the Phoenix. And so you have to find where they're keeping it prisoner so that you can return it uh, with or without a handy ball of myrrh to the solar temple in order to keep the sun up in the sky. Yeah. And of course, because the Phoenix periodicity is so, how should we say, poetically determined, it just happens to be at the beginning of your campaign or at the at the moment of the campaign. And you can even build up to it where the bad guys are like, you know, getting ready to do a thing and your player characters know that there's no way they can do that thing because astrologically the sun's in the wrong place. It'll stop them. And you're like, ha ha ha, stupid bad guys trying to do things with the sun. And then of course, aha, they know that the Phoenix is due to come. They steal the Phoenix and then they can move the sun around in the sky or, or make it stand still uh, like Joshua and change the astro astrological conjunction so that their evil plan can go forward. So the Phoenix not only can become a scenario, but it can become a, a link in a chain of, uh, of, of mystical plans that the bad guy have. I, I should mention that, uh, our boy Wolfram of Eschenbach says that the Phoenix is powered by the Holy Grail. So if you want your Phoenix to be a good thing that, uh, powers our heroes, that can be another possibility is that, you know, the, the, the Grail, 
drives the, uh, gives the Phoenix the power of immortality. And then the Phoenix in turn can bestow like a one time, you know, uh, you know, as long as you die in fire, I'll resurrect you type situation. And you have to sort of tactically use that ability to explosively, um, uh, combust, uh, for, for, for the best, uh, effects against, uh, the foes of the grail and or the party. In a more picaresque vein, you could be assigned to, uh, guard the Phoenix as you take it from uh, one nation to the nation where the solar temple is. And along the way, uh, this supposedly immortal bird that will only uh, die when you place it in the brazier and is immolated, it, you know, gets grabbed by a polecat and killed. <laughs> and so your job now is to find another likely looking bird because it's not, it's been 500 years since the Phoenix has been taken to the sun temple. People aren't sure what it is. Find, you know, some common grouse or pheasant and paint it up a bit and then get to the temple and somehow uh, arrange for it to seem to be reborn and uh, use your uh, stage magic abilities uh, because otherwise there's going to be a gigantical uh, political conflagration where the, uh, you know, the entire populace of the, the solar city will rise up in fury if the, uh, if the phoenix is not reborn. That will show that the king has lost the mandate of heaven. So it's your job to uh, fake a phoenix. And in fact, you can do that without even having the original real phoenix eaten by the polecat. It's like the king could know very well that uh, it's not that there's no real phoenix or the phoenix could uh, uh, show up with its uh, ball of myrrh and get shot down by archers or whatever, whatever the scandal is. Uh, you could have a whole thing where it's not about the uh, phoenix as MacGuffin per se, but the political ramifications of a uh, a failed phoenix event. And uh, the, mention, the mention of the mandate of heaven, I guess, means we should mention briefly the so-called Chinese phoenix, the Feng Huang, which is not actually a phoenix in that it doesn't, you know, be born from its own self. It's just a lucky bird that shows up, not just a lucky bird, it's a really amazing lucky bird, and it shows up with good fortune, often to inculcate the beginning of a new reign. So that's your sort of crossover, I guess, with uh, your, your picaresque or political phoenix idea, although obviously the priests of Heliopolis must have had a good thing coming when they could dress up a golden pheasant and uh, put it in a ball of myrrh and, and get all kinds of solid gold goodies for it. So the possibility of a phoenix merely as the uh, bearer of good fortune means you might have a phoenix hunt. And in sort of like the old Jules Verne stories where we know that there's a golden meteor somewhere and we all have to hunt it down. Or you can be, you know, you know, the Phoenix is going to show up, you know, either in Arabia or Egypt or wherever or China. And uh, you have to get it before the bad guys do before the MSS or the Phoenix secret society or whoever else. And because whoever's first to the Phoenix gets uh, magical prizes of some sort. Right. And to return to the Debbie Downer style uh, Phoenix, uh, perhaps the one on the shirt we're selling now, <laughs> there's the uh, idea of the what the one that kills itself in order to show that there are demons or criminals about. So you could have a plot line where a Phoenix shows up uh, at, at court, uh, kills itself and uh, it burns up and then is reborn. The new Phoenix has no idea which culprit it was trying to uh, point the, the feather at, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, the investigators, uh, now have to figure out uh, what the previous Phoenix that killed itself, uh, who exactly it was trying to uh, implicate uh, in uh, in whatever crime. So you who may... is feeling insufficiently guilty. Yes, exactly. Well, yes, if, if it's a Catholic Phoenix, it would just mean everyone, but then there would be right, no... Yeah investigation. Uh, well, 
Uh, one thing about this podcast is that uh, when our segments uh, go up in flame, uh, they are reborn, not in fire, but in an exciting commercial message. And on the other side, a new spanking brand new gleaming segment awaits us. The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. It's time once more to head uh, to the shelf that is covered with volumes and tomes for the book hut. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Jeff Cars suggested uh, after John Le Carre, a.k.a. Uh, David Cornwell, passed away at the end of 2020, that uh, we, who often mention Le Carre, should do a retrospective uh, segment. Uh, and so uh, here we go. John Le Carre, it's a touchstone author. Uh, for anyone interested in the spy genre or in espionage. And uh, on his death, a couple of observers made the very good point that, uh, in a way, he is not just the spy novelist of his generation, but the British novelist of his generation, and that uh, it is the uh, the depth of characterization in his works that make them uh, different from your sort of run-in-the-mill spy thriller. They have suspense, uh, but they also have a lot to say about people in general, and especially people in England and in England of Cornwell's generation. He started out uh, famously as an, a British intelligence officer. He worked briefly at both of the two uh, services. Uh, he never quite explained everything that he was up to, but in his uh, memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, he does refer to it as doing a lot of liaison work of uh, uh, buddying up to uh, West German officials. So it's almost sort of a quasi-diplomatic job if you accept everything he says. But he, he repeats again and again that his actual involvement in intelligence was pretty minor. And in fact, he was the reason he used a pseudonym was because he was still a serving officer up till the point of his breakthrough novel, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is a, a fact that uh, surprised me. I thought that he'd cut ties before starting to write about it. And uh, initially, his own generation of colleagues really hated his work uh, because <laughs> they, they thought it made uh, them look bad. Uh, but then over time, he came to be regarded as sort of the, the uh, gray eminence of the field of espionage and all sorts of later people uh, of later generations of and different spy agencies became uh, huge admirers of his work. And his work influenced the culture 
of uh, spying, including introducing mole as a as a term and honey trap. Yes, uh, a lot of what we think of as as spy lingo, and in fact, what is now spy lingo, was basically stuff that Le Carre used because there wasn't a term for it yet, or a or a common term for it. And so you have, as you say, mole, honey trap, lamp lighter. There's a number of uh, code words that he used to make his books sound authentic because, of course, real spy work is drudgery and office work mostly. And uh, then, in the same way that American gangsters all started modeling themselves after the Godfather and Goodfellas, <laughs> real life spies said, "Oh, that's much better than what we do. We're gonna we're gonna use those." And he does he does become sort of a a, a guy who sort of wills a certain spy culture into being in a way by picturing spies who are broken and uh, fatalistic. And then I think spying turns you fairly broken and fatalistic anyway. And so uh, Lecrae gives intelligence agents, intelligence personnel kind of permission to have that in their persona, as opposed to the sort of boy's own adventure or cowboy model that Eric Ambler and uh, the original uh, American pulps ind- indicated spying should be like. And that sort of world weary supercilious cynicism as tiresome as it may be on cable news is also sort of a, a product of Le Carre that he, he rewrites what the allowed types of expression for, for actual spies. But that is really secondary to the point that he wrote probably four or five of the best 10 spy novels ever written. And that's just true. And there is nothing that anyone can say about uh, spy who came in from the cold tinker Taylor soldier spy the whole Carla trilogy um that that is too much it is just a a peak of the genre and it's it, it's so good and so strong that it's almost unimaginable in a way that there could be another work that good it's it's kind of Mozarty or Shakespeare in a way that you just as many problems as as some of his novels later developed, the 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 absolute a list are the absolute a list for a reason and they're going to be that for centuries i i think that uh your your notion that he's britain's greatest 20th century novelist is is a very strong one right so uh if you're starting uh with le carre i would recommend the spy who came in from the cold uh that's the it's not the first smiley novel but you don't need to read them all in order and it's the it's the one that made his career uh, he felt that he had had too much success early in his uh, career and was trying to constantly live up to Spy Who Came In From The Cold. But then ultimately, uh, the other later books in that same series became as well regarded. So he let, was able to leave behind that feeling of being overshadowed by an early work. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is also probably the best Le Carre-based film. Uh, and uh, that is because it is a shorter book and therefore easily adapted to uh, film. And mostly the other great adaptations or the solid ones, although there are some good ones like Constant Gardner, are in miniseries form. So the uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from 79 with Alec Guinness, and then the uh, Smiley's People follow up. It is, uh, I think, indelibly great. You can't, once you see those, you can't picture George Smiley as anybody else. And the more recent Tinker Tailor with Gary Oldman is a great film and captures, well, or, or a really solid film captures the crazy thoughts, but Gary Oldman just ain't smiley. He's too large and charismatic. And the idea yeah, that, that's the problem with Gary Oldman is he is too charismatic. And so 
you wind up with a smiley who is not depicted by anything in the story, but is depicted by the way that Oldman acts the character as much more of a, a mastermind than he is in the novel or in the Alec Guinness series uh, from 79. And I don't necessarily say that's a bad thing. And it certainly lends itself to, and I think I like the Alfredson uh, 2011 Tinker better than you do, but I think that it is not the smiley of the book. And, you know, given the amount of whining that I do about Dracula movies, I suppose I would be uh, indicted if I were to, uh, say that, well, it doesn't matter if they get the main character wrong, because it was so good about a Smiley movie. But yeah, uh, Alec Guinness is Smiley. Uh, the the miniseries uh, Smiley's People that followed up Tinker Tailor is, it's not quite as good as that miniseries, but it's so much better than you think it's going to be. Although it is certainly a slower boil than the original miniseries, which is itself not exactly a, a fast-paced uh, television show. The Smiley's People miniseries is, is a, it's a bit of a stick, but it is so good and so thematic. And of course, you get that great, uh, culmination of the, of the whole trilogy at the end of it, which is done perfectly on screen. Right. And because uh, Lecrae's later novels just have a lot of plot in them, they need the length of miniseries. And so the more recent ones, now that we're in, uh, back in miniseries territory, have been, uh, well, particularly Little Drummer Girl done by Park Chan-wook uh, with Florence Pugh is, uh, is pretty good. Uh, back to the books a bit. If uh, There's another uh, standalone uh, Le Carre that I would strongly re- recommend that I just uh, read just recently, which is A Perfect Spy. It is the one that uh, most draws on his own life as the son of a con artist. Uh, the uh, authorial stand-in, of course, is... Uh, is a traitor, which uh, David Cornwell was not, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is also a, uh, if you want just a single volume standalone book that is more like his other books, that's also a, a good place to start and is independent of the uh, whole smiley continuity, which he uh, revisits from time to time uh, with even sort of a coda in 2017, uh, which not great as a work of plotting, but I still kind of liked because it brought the characters back and sort of creates the sort of emotional literary novel side of it works better, I think, than the the spy novel part. Yep. Centering Peter Gwillem in uh, Legacy of Spies in that last uh, Smiley novel is great. Gwillem is a great character, and it was great to see him get to take main stage. I think that by then... Uh, Le Carre's sense of proportion had had completely deserted him is the trouble. Uh, his gift for plotting is still great scene by scene, but his gift for plotting a whole novel, it fell apart sometime after 9-11. Uh, I think The Constant Gardener is the last great Le Carre novel. All the ones after that suffer in one degree or another from, you know, heavy handedness or, or preachiness or just the wrong foot on the gas. And again, they're, you know, third rate Le Carre is better than first rate virtually anyone else. But the trouble is, if you started by reading the good stuff, it just makes you sad to read the, the later stuff. But Constant Gardener is, an, is is the other standalone that I would pick out because it is so good and so much. It, it's sort of him trying to write what thrillers became after him. He's sort of taking not quite Tom Clancy, but taking that school of, of writing on, on its own terms and doing a tremendous job with it. I think that the, um, uh, 
the movie does an excellent job of of bringing that uh, sort of fast paced quality, which was not what you associate with Lecrae before, uh, into it. And then, sadly, the like I say, he he gets distracted by being mad at things, which you know you you understand it, but it's it's not good for the sort of uh, stand back, think about it characters that he likes to present. It's often observed that Lecrae is a little lost when the Cold War ends. But I think the reason for that actually is that he's is that England is no longer even anywhere near the uh, center of the global war on terror, and that when he moves to the post Cold War environment, he's moving away from writing about England, and that that it's it's less losing uh, the Cold War than than losing the description of England, and he then uh, for the later novels goes around the world doing research and. Uh, does a really strong version of that, that if it were, if those books were written by somebody else, yeah, they would have be, been written by David Cornwell. We'd think they were amazing. They'd be written really by acclaimed. But it, it, I think that's the, the difference is that he's no longer uh, zeroing in on uh, his own social class and time and, uh, and country, but uh, he was an extremely prolific writer. If you haven't familiarized yourself uh, with the work yet, there's a, uh, uh, still a lot to go, and I was surprised to find that there's even a later novel than Legacy of Spies, which I have, have yet to read, so we'll see what's up with that. Yeah, that's um, Agent Running in the Field, which uh, I think our friend in front of the podcast, Gareth Hanrahan, liked pretty well, but I I have enough other stuff to read that um, late Lecrae is no longer uh, jumping right onto my scope. I read uh, a Leg- Legacy of Spies really more as a, a work of, of love for, for that universe or that mythos and less as as an enjoyable book by itself uh, but if you haven't read lecare uh there's lots of stuff to uh to get going on it'll uh keep you going for a good long while and it's time for us to uh move from a, a literary retrospective to i think we've got an ongoing cinematic retrospective uh, lurking on the other side of this exciting commercial message The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Make sure any immolations this podcast suffers are temporary by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Josh Borlace, Darren Dumay, Patrick Joint, Chris Farrell, and even Lindsay. The whir of the projector, the cigarette smoke spiraling up through the bright beam, 
the feel of whatever that is on the floor as we make our way to the center seats, let us know that we're once more in the cinema hut and in the cinema hut as we settle into those plush chairs that we remember from so many months ago. We cast our minds back, not just to being in a movie theater at all, but to the 1950s, where our Horror Essentials series left off and picks up. I think this time we're in a drive-in, Ken. Are we in a drive-in? That'd be neat. That'd be cool. Our big tail fins and our um, uh, and our popcorns and whatnot. Yeah, because it's, it's time for science horror. Uh, the previous eras of horror, which uh, weirdly have so far sort of clustered at the beginning of each a decade were not as easily tied to their times as to uh, what was going on in the form and, and history of cinema. So you saw a lot of uh, literary adaptations of timeless classics. There was certainly a sense of uh, darkness in the early 30s that corresponded to the Depression, but you couldn't really point to them and go, oh, these are extremely of their time. The whole point was that they're not. But in the uh, wake of the atom bomb and the uh, anxieties underlying the supposed placidity of the uh, 50s in the U.S. Uh, you have a, a big stew of uh, a paranoia that now starts to relate to science. And also you have a change in the protagonists and the change also in the level at which these films are uh, pitched. Uh, these are no longer uh, very often A pictures. The stars and the main characters are often played by uh, relatively flat, interchangeable actors. So uh, instead of your uh, Lugosi's and your Karloff's or or even the more charismatic mainstream actors like Frederick March or Spencer Tracy or even Claude Rains, uh, you get lead actors like Gene Barry. <laughs> the legend. The legend. Or Richard Carlson or, you know, uh, good old Kevin McCarthy. And the sort of style changes a lot. The uh, shooting or often becomes... Richard Agar. Of, yes. Becomes flatter. The lighting is... Uh, the budgets are lower. And also uh, the, the sets uh, become drab. Uh, but there is a sense of kind of uh, realism because this is not occurring in Backlot Gothic. But again, the horrors are beginning to uh, creep out uh, from uh, contemporary America. Or in the case of The Thing from Another World from 1951... Uh, directed on paper by Christian Nyby, but really uh, there's a heavy hand in there by the producer uh, Howard Hawks, is uh, happening not uh, on an American street, but in a polar expedition. And this, of course, is the, this is uh, based on a John W. Campbell uh, novella and is uh, the precursor to the John Carpenter version of the thing, which we will get to uh, once we uh, hit hit the 80s. But this is a classic example of Cold War era uh, paranoia and uh, and dread. And it's a classic a sort of horror in the installation setup, which basically then uh, becomes not only the template for all kinds of uh, different horror movies over the years, but all sorts of Doctor Who episodes as well. Indeed. And it has one of the great moments, in my opinion, of, of cosmic horror on screen, uh, which is at the beginning of the movie where the scientists discover the flying saucer or the bit of metal and they're backing out to see how big it is. And the camera tracks them walking out onto the ice to show oh, it's a flying saucer. And that, that reveal is, I think sort of, uh, it, it can be our, our opener for the films of the fifties that we're looking at something and suddenly we see 
a monster. We see a, a, a scary thing and it's uh, science and investigation that have led us there. And in uh, the case of thing from another world that will make it worse until it fixes it. That uh, one of the strong elements of, uh, of that movie that uh, gets carried down to virtually every monster movie since is that the dumb scientists want to talk to the alien and the cool military guys want to kill the alien. And guess what turns out to be right? You're correct. Killing. So it's a, it's got a different vibe. Uh, these are movies about fighting back in a way that even movies like uh, Dracula or Wolfman are not. That these are those are movies about surviving the terror, and in many cases, the movies of the fifties are about solving the terror, usually by in this case setting it on fire. But there's other exciting methods going on, right? And the whole Cold War aspect comes in that these these are very often. Uh, stories about invasion and uh, what more classic invasion could there be than the war of the worlds H.G. Uh, Wells, a novel which in 1953 is adapted by Byron Haskins and is a classic uh, alien invasion horror, uh, classic uh, early disaster film, uh, uh, very apocalyptic. So now we're bringing in uh, not just the idea that um, you can be uh, bitten by Dracula if he takes a yen to you, or even that you're in trouble if you di- uh, find a flying saucer on your Arctic base, but that the uh, the threat, the monster, is not here just for you. It's not operating on a micro scale. It's operating on a, a macro scale. So this harkens back to the 30s in that it is a literary adaptation, but is very much attuned uh, to uh, the times. And, and again, talk about the strong hand of producer, uh, you will see it referred to as George Pal's The War of the Worlds because Pal had a very strong visual sense of what he wanted movies to look like. And I say it as who, as who maybe shouldn't, but the Martians have never looked better, weirder, and more terrifying than they do in War of the Worlds, even though they're no longer tripods. They're some sort of flying gooseneck lamp aircraft, but it's still, it's a, it's a great thing. And the sound effects, the, the technical quality of that film for 1953 is pretty amazing. And if you, it, it's one of those movies like Nosferatu that it doesn't take very much to get yourself back into that mind space and be amazed all over again. It's a better movie, I think, than a lot of people think it is if they've only, you know, seen little squibbits of it in, you know, some sort of uh, uh, anthology series or whatever. I think if you watch it front to back, even the ending that, you know, H.G. Wells climbed up out of hell to scream about. <laughs> that that movie is just so good and so strong uh, as an experience that uh, it deserves to be the template for all these other movies. Uh, we're talking about um, throwbacks to the 30s, of course, and uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon is often considered the last of the great universal monsters. It was a universal movie uh, directed by Jack Arnold, uh, who I think just became a standard B-movie director. I don't think he had any great auteurist uh, moments, but he, he comes back strong with a lot of other monster movies. And again, that's the one uh, that produces the last great iconic universal monster in, in many ways, even more than Frankenstein. This is a movie about the makeup guy or the, or the costume guy, not really a movie about anything else. Although the story is again, a sympathetic monster uh, this time with more sex because it's 1954, 1934. And you can show uh, the lovely Julie Adams swimming around and uh, activating the lubricious instincts of the gill man. Right. Well, there was some uh, foxy stuff happening in King Kong, but about got cut out. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, uh, Julie Adams, who uh, just recently uh, passed away is the iconic woman who the uh, gill man becomes uh, fascinated with. Uh, There's a lot of great, 
underwater uh, footage, but it's definitely, it's the King Kong narrative template redone. I personally have a strong connection to this film because it is the first scary film that my dad showed me when I was quite young. It was on TV. We stayed up late to watch it. And then afterwards I had nightmares. And so my mom said, no, you can't show him any more scary movies. And I was like, no, the nightmares are part of it. What are you doing, mom? And so this was uh, shot in 3D, speaking of it being the 50s. Uh, If you're ever lucky enough to see a 3D screening of it, there's the underwater sequences become even more weird and dreamlike. And there's a great shot of a uh, fossilized creature hand uh, that uh, reaches out uh, into the audience as the uh, camera tracks into it. And uh, speaking of uh, uh, science and uh, and creatures, uh, we now get to a, a classic of the bug horror genre, Them, with an exclamation point, 1954 by Gordon Douglas. And uh, this is atomic energy causes giant ants to go on a rampage. And that's basically all you need to know. Uh, this is one cut above the other titles that we're talking about here because the cast is a little better with some recognizable people in it. James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, uh, James Arness is in it. And uh, the uh, female lead gets to be a scientist played by Jen Weldon. She's actually a doctor along with everybody else uh, trying to uh, figure out uh, what what to do about these giant ants. What to do indeed. Um, we also, of course, should mention that uh, I believe there is an early appearance in that movie by uh leonard nimoy as a army guy and so if you are a, a leonard nimoy completist as uh, i was at least in the 60s and 70s there you go there's another moment for for leonard nimoy he's literally on screen for a second and a half but he does uh, his part to fight giant ants them is not the first kaiju movie in america those go uh, at least back to the previous year in beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms which was a a fine movie uh, and a great ray harryhausen dinosaur but the king of the kaiju the best of the kaiju is our first foreign film and i think our only foreign film on this uh list uh godzilla 1954 directed by inoshiro honda the japanese cut which used to never get to see now of course you can get it on your blu-ray or whatever uh is much more of a terrifying film than the american version where suddenly raymond burr is there so if you can watch the Japanese 1954 Gojira, the American Godzilla that we all know and love from Saturday afternoons, or I guess all of us, if we're 50, like Robin and I, but um, uh, the, the Japanese Gojira is a legitimate horror film and has another cosmic horror moment when they're looking at the footprint of Godzilla on the beach and they find a trilobite in it. And that is another because it's a, a specifically intellectual horror. I, I think that it has a, a slightly different frisson than just a, you know, a, a, a big bunch of dead bodies somewhere. So try and get the, the Japanese Gojira movie. It is obviously a commentary on Hiroshima and on uh, nuclear power in general and is a real uh, gut punch of a film. Yes. And quite explicitly. So you will sometimes hear people say, well, you know, uh, the Godzilla movies were an implicit, uh, discre- no, it's not, it, there's nothing implicit about it. It's directly addressed in the whole thing, including a point where, uh, there are Hiroshima survivors who are cowering and, and are destroyed, uh, by, uh, by Godzilla. Uh, and it has, uh, Takashi Shimura in it, who is one of, uh, Akira Kurosawa's stock company. Uh, he plays the, uh, the older, uh, wiser, uh, scientist. The, that series, very quickly uh, becomes funner and sillier 
uh, and become more sort of fantasy, kooky uh, monster battles. But the original God, uh, Godzilla is genuinely disturbing and terrifying. And I was talking earlier about horror coming to American main streets. And the exemplar of that is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956 by Don Siegel, uh, who is a recognizable a- auteur director, unless you count Howard Hawks, uh, probably the biggest directorial name on this list. Yeah. And that is the classic film of the uh, invasion of the alien pod people who uh, put plant pods in your basement and s- slowly take you over. And it's about uh, what happens when all of your neighbors uh, start to uh, change and uh, it has been described as a Cold War film, uh, but it is so brilliantly done that you can uh, place any ideology on top of it. So yeah. is it the commies that are uh, taking over? Is it communist hysteria that is taking over? Or is it about any uh, situation where all of your friends start to be propagandized and de-individualized and turned uh, into uh, followers of a, a strange belief system that makes them recognizable but not quite themselves anymore and uh kevin mccarthy gives a great performance as the sort of every man who just who stumbles onto the plot it's based on a tremendously great novel by jack finney and uh, as you say yes the when it came out uh the sort of you know chin stroking hollywood uh review types were all ah what a what a parable for uh mccarthyism and how it can change us and don siegel said Oh, I made it as a parable against communist infiltration, but you do you. Uh, it, it is a it, it is a masterpiece, and it's one that is susceptible to constant reinterpretation, which is why a number of uh, lesser remakes have been made of it. I think the third remake with Isabel and Johnny is probably my favorite, but uh, none of them hold a candle to the original attack on Santa Mira in 1956. Uh, from the macro to the micro, uh, where Jack Arnold returns for a uh, Richard Matheson script, speaking of guarantees of quality, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And this is a movie that, I, again, I think everyone has seen, you know, two good scenes from, uh, but the whole movie is great. And it has, I would say, the best use of a cat as a horror monster. There is a, a bravura sequence where our our hero, who is now the size of a mouse, discovers that his beloved equivalent of Virgil uh, may like him in a different way. And it's, uh, it, it's a terrific movie, very tight, very strong. Again, I mean, Jack Arnold does not necessarily ascend to the auteurist heights, but he's, he's definitely a great utility hitter. You bring him in when you want a solid triple knocked and he'll knock it. Yes. It's, uh, another example, of course, of the, the classic science whoops, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, pointing a ray at yourself that causes you to, to shrink down and become a, a tasty treat for your cat. Uh, is a classic tale of scientific hubris. So the uh, metaphor is uh, uh, juicy, uh, not at all elusive, uh, but as you uh, suggest, it's not just the idea behind it, but the execution that really works. Um, The next title I've snuck in, something that really isn't a horror essential, isn't a, a, a 101, perhaps it's a 201. If you're using this list to show horror movies to other people, you might want to drop it. But I really like it, and I think it's a great example of, in a way, of sort of Lovecraftian science horror. There's nothing, there's no reference to anything Lovecraftian in it, of course, but it's a, basically about uh, giant crystals that grow so large that they begin to destroy entire towns. So it's an, a, an imaginary science-based uh, horror film, but in, a, in its way, although it's definitely a B-picture with a 
cast, including such stars as Grant Williams and Lola Albright. There's no exciting charismatic acting going on here. The writing team included Jack Arnold. uh, So it's part of a group of people who are churning out these movies according to this formula. But with the proviso that it is in some ways a kind of limited film, the idea of just giant crystals being the thing that destroy your town and wondering what the hell to do about them and how to stop them, I think is a great little type B horror that given the theme of all these other films, I thought I'd pop in there. Yeah. It's, it, it, it does implacable better than a lot of movies with a, with a hundred times the budget and just the sheer seeming unavoidability of this Lovecraftian type disaster makes it a very, very strong film and the score by an uncredited Henry Mancini. So it's not nearly as, uh, as rinky dink as you might think, uh, despite the fact that it was literally filmed on a rinky dink little set and looks like it cost all of $9 to make, uh, but it is a hidden classic. And it's one you can stunt on your friends with who are all saying, well, of course the fly 1958 Kurt Newman, of course, we're going to mention that. Duh. <laughs> Uh, not least because it has the great Vincent Price in it, uh, but also because, again, it's one of those iconic, you know, uh, bits of horror movies that you've seen in other compilations, uh, shows up with the, um, uh, the, the, the high pitched shrieking, help me! And the rest of it. Yes, it is the, uh, the advent of body horror. Of course, Cronenberg will take this later and really make that, uh, the center stage part of this. But again, uh, classic science whoops and just uh, disgust and unease. The one thing you do not want to become half of is a fly. Uh, so this is a thread that is going to start running through horror. And uh, Herbert Marshall is, is in it as well. So it's a little bit better cast than the other ones. And um, as you suggest, it's uh, Vincent Price beginning his horror career. He's been around for uh, since the 40s at this point as a character actor and done a lot of things. And uh, as we're about to see next week, uh, he's about to become uh, a, a new uh, horror icon. And this is uh, his uh, early foray uh, into that. Uh, finally, in the uh, classic genre of, of things coming from space, we have invasion. We have body horror again. We have a, a sense of, uh, of curiosity not paying off. Gooey stuff you're not supposed to touch. We have The Blob from 1958, uh, directed by Irvin Yearworth. Again, not a, uh, a name that resounds through the annals of Oturdom. And this is also an example. We haven't hit very many of them. There, there are other lesser ones during this period of the sort of teen-focused horror. Right. Uh, and, of course, this is going to become a, uh, a big thread all the way through. There is something very disturbing about just a substance that if you touch it, you're doomed. Uh, and uh, it brings us Steve McQueen. It's his first feature film performance. Uh, the biggest star uh, we've uh, discussed in all of this section. And uh, again, not necessarily timeless cinema, but something that you recognize the, the, the tropes and the rhythms of, you know, certainly down to your Stranger Things days of today, but also a fairly effective piece. I saw it, I think, as a young teen at a church lock-in of all things. It was one of the better uh, horror film experiences of my life. It turns out to see it with a bunch of screaming teens, uh, just as it was seen in 1958. I, I think that was a, that's a good environment to have seen it in, but it, it holds up. 
I mean, it's again, it is not invasion of the body snatchers or, uh, even Godzilla, but it is, it is certainly, uh, it does what it says on the, on the jar and it does it great. It does a great atmospheric job with the small town, the yeah. quiet, sleepy small town that then uh, everything starts to go wrong. And th- again, and that's another thing that you will uh, see referenced again and again, as you point out all the way up to uh, stranger things. Uh, so the, at this point, we hit a transition, and it's not exactly the smoothest transition. So we're going to go back in time at the beginning of next week's Cinema Hut episode and cover what happens next, which is the reaction to all of this science horror, to rationalism gone wrong, is we're going to go back uh, into the past, into the Gothic, into the surreal, uh, and uh, the, the Gothic uh, will return and uh, uh, will return with more uh, horror essentials next week but th- we still have one more segment of this podcast and it's waiting on the other side of this exciting commercial message Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to enter the most vague of huts, the the hut where we're not sure where the uh, psychosocial uh, meets the uh, historically crackpotty of the uh, weird animals, just stuff that is odd but doesn't fit in any other category. And, oh, wait, there there in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're uh, sipping kombuchas. Looking out the window, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor because we're in the elliptony hut. But this time, the ceiling of the elliptony hut goes up way up because we're about to talk about a relatively new uh, bit of elliptonic nuttery, uh, the giant of Kandahar. As you pointed out in the past, Ken, makers up of uh, nonsense uh, tend to be somewhat lazy and just base it on previous nonsense. But here we've got some brand new nonsense initially brought to us by the nonsense viewers at Coast to Coast AM. Yeah. And this, of course, is a uh, by request of beloved Patreon backer and friend of the podcast, Rich Ranallo, who wanted to get the 411 on said giant. Uh, in November 2005, a, uh, a person who was described on the internet as a gigantologist, <laughs> good gig, uh, Steve Quayle. It's, is Harvard still doing a gigantology degree? I, I think it's a, I think it's a joint program with yeah. George Washington because George Washington, as we know, was a giant. People just won't stop talking about their Harvard gigantology degree. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's really more of, it's like the, it, it, it's like an institute. It, it's not quite Harvard, but it, you know, they, they have giants in Cambridge. That's all we're saying about this. 
Anywho, gigantologist Steve Quayle goes on the radio on the uh, rigorously fact-checked uh, Coast to Coast AM and says, according to his sources, a 12-foot, 1,100-pound polydactylus, meaning it has six fingers and toes, giant, was killed by an Air Force officer in March of 2005, so just, just the other month, uh, in a cave near Kandahar. And that the foul-smelling corpse, I guess more foul-smelling than a regular corpse, was then flown secretly to Europe, to a, a base in Germany somewhere. Uh, Steve Quayle then changed his story in 2008, presenting a different witness who said the giant was only nine feet tall, but was flown to Ohio. And I don't know if that would be two different giants, or if uh, Germany's Rhein's boat makes you fly only giants of 10 feet or more to Germany. I'm not sure where yeah, that... You can only put water and barley in your giants. Exactly. And uh, so Steve Quayle sort of, uh, he had a novel that was not coincidentally about a giant that was killed by the army. And so he wanted to let us know that his novel was based in fact... Perhaps the novel wasn't moving quickly. Maybe, um, maybe it wasn't. And so he would come on shows and uh, say, uh, speaking of this story, here's a novel. Uh, but a different elliptonist, Bible nonsense impresario slash ufologist L.A. Marzulli, uh, the current caretaker of the Watchers series, a, a series that goes back even to Bible code times, apparently, uh, presents uh, a new version in a DVD that is also, I think, on YouTube. And in his version, it's not 2005, it's 2002, and it's not the Air Force that kills him. It's special forces, possibly a secret giant killing team of special forces, possibly just regular special forces. But the story Viz Marzuli is that a U.S. Army patrol in Afghanistan goes missing. They send the special forces to find them. They find a mysterious cave and it's full of dead human bones uh, that have been split for marrow and the rest of it. And out of that cave pops a 12 foot or maybe is it 15 foot? Anyway, a giant, still with those six fingers, still with the terrible smell, uh, but this time he has red hair and a red beard and two or three rows of teeth, and he uses his giant spear to stab a special forces guy named Dan, and then the special forces unleash with all their weapons, including a Barrett 50 cal anti-materiel rifle, and managed to kill the giants after 30 seconds, or the giant, rather, after 30 seconds of fire, which would be enough to pulverize several elephants, not just one giant, if this giant were not magical, uh, hint. Uh, and then a secret helicopter unit called by the special forces showed up coming up from the bottom of the, of the crevasse. Some, so maybe they came from a hollow earth base, who can say? And then they flew the corpse away. And according to a different piece of testimony, uh, the C-130, it was loaded onto a C-130 and flown to the United States. And L.A. Marzulli began with one story from a guy called The Shooter. And so he's driving to interview The Shooter. And I guess he gets in a conversation with his driver. And his driver says, oh, I was in Afghanistan. And you imagine L.A. Marzulli says, Oh, did you ever hear about the giant of Kandahar? And the driver says, hear about him. I helped kill him because L.A. <laughs> Marzulli just has that kind of luck and is not at all a gullible rube who can be taken by his driver, who probably already hates L.A. Marzulli. So anyway, um, that's where Marzulli has built up this beautiful tapestry of stories. And his thesis is that this giant is not just a regular old 
uh, cryptid, not a gigantopithecus wandering around, somehow marooned in time. Nope, he is one of the Nephilim, the offspring of angels and uh, the daughters of man mentioned in Genesis, uh, theoretically all drowned in the flood, but maybe they survived in caves in Afghanistan. Uh, it seems like a terrible place to hide out from a flood, but what do I know? I guess if it's a cave on a mountain, you're all right. Right. So th- this is basically the equivalent of, of, of in ufology. You've got your shift from uh, nuts and bolts aliens to ultra terrestrials. And basically this is the shift of the nuts and bolts cryptid survivor giant into being a, an ultra terrestrial giant. Right. And specifically a biblical giant. And then the notion that uh, cryptids are misunderstood Bible prophecy is, or Bible evidence is something that I think is, it's a little more recent than you would think it would be because in the 19th century, everyone always believed in the Bible and they didn't need to find nonsense giants to prove it. They, they found, you know, caveman bones and said, well, there you go. That's Adam. We're problem solved. And they didn't have to make up nonsense about pretend giants. Uh, they did make up nonsense about pretend giants, but it wasn't in the sort of defensive crouch that your L.A. Marzulli watchers types do. And the sort of attempting to hijack ufology and uh, cryptozoology back around to, uh, you know, uh, young earth creationism is, I think, at the very least, an interesting intellectual shift. Although, again, you know, the aliens being space brothers who have a message of peace and tell us all to be good Christians goes all the way back to the first contact year reports in the 50s. Right. But the notion that the angels are actually. Sorry. Yeah. But this Nephilim are like eating. They're cannibals. How how does that work? Because the Nephilim are bad. The the Nephilim are bad. Um, According to one version and speaking as the man who was line developer for the role-playing game Nephilim. Believe me, I read a lot about Nephilim back in the day. Uh, one version of it is that the angels, when they came down to mate with the daughters of men, did so against God's, one hopes, very explicit orders to not do that. And so those were became fallen angels, and their offspring became powerful, magical, and evil. And uh, it was perhaps even to get rid of the Nephilim that God caused the flood not to get rid of, you know, humans being jerks. One, one assumes God recognized that that was going to go on regardless, but uh, he definitely didn't want a bunch of Nephilim running around. So the, the Nephilim are, uh, are, are bad because I think a lot of this has got tainted by this Gnostic notion that if you've had sex, procreative sex, bad things have happened and, you know, watch out. So have sex. And then next stop, you've got additional fingers and you're eating people. Exactly. You become a multi-toothed cannibal. Um, I like the sort of almost in surely coincidental connection between Marzulli's Nephilim having multiple rows of teeth and the legend of the Manticore, which also lurked in caves and had multiple rows of teeth and ate people. But I don't quite believe in the, the Canto sphere enough to believe that this myth bubbles up through L.A. Marzulli. I think it's just uh, maybe Marzulli thinking about sharks or having some other bizarre notion of why Nephilim have to have multiple rows of teeth. I don't know, you know, which one is the is, is the thing he made up to confirm the other one, basically. Right. And of course, as we've discussed, the, the belief in giants as actual entities in the world is not unique to the giant of Kandahar. There are uh, giant conspiracy theorists who are uh, 
Looking pretty quaint and charming these days. Yeah, it's the the amount of trouble that they get into by yelling that the Smithsonian Institution is covering up secret Arizona giants. Well, I mean, I guess we shouldn't say that because God knows what, but but it does seem like a relatively harmless thing to delude yourself over. Yes, because even the flat earthers are doing a heel turn. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the, the saving grace is they don't believe in GPS, so they can't get to the rally. But other <laughs> than that, you know, it's not a good look. Yeah, but the uh, the Nephilim notion has been burbling up through sort of um, the Christianizing or fundamentalistizing or however you want to color it, the biblical gloss on this sort of uh, uh, magic nonsense for a while. But I think it really blew up with the sort of prophecies in real time that uh, Hal Lindsey began with the late great planet Earth and that a lot of other people, you know, latched onto to get even more ridiculous and extreme. And once you start saying, who would be the symbolic Nephilim? Could it be Democrats? Then the next step is symbolic Nephilim. My, my left foot, we got real Nephilim. That's more fun. And, and off we are, off we go to, to add them to, to various giant reports. Uh, well, if you have a, a propensity toward conspiracy theory, there's nothing I would sooner have you believe than that there's some giants in a cave once. And there were some helicopters that were... Now, there's the idea that there's a secret helicopter unit. We mentioned that, which implies, Mm -hmm. I suppose, that there are... They're specialized in picking up weird corpses or something, but... uh, Yeah, the sort of Operation Moondust for cryptids, which, frankly, there's your role-playing game scenario. People who have wondered if we're ever going to go to a role-playing game scenario. You, You get to play the... Not necessarily the guys who hunt and kill the cryptids, but the guys who have to figure out what to do with them after that and dispose of them and maybe use them in various ways and deal with the fact that you've got to get this 1100 pound body somehow back to America without setting off 8 million different kinds of alarm. And that sounds boring and something like players won't want to do until you think about every time your players have gotten down a rabbit hole of figuring out a logistical thing that you don't even care about. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are a lot of players that would love to play uh, the special a cryptid corpse transport unit. And it could be, it could even be a, a dual thing where you play two different sets. You play the, you know, the, the, the heroic, you know, seal team giant that goes after cryptids and, and then seal team 13 trademark. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Uh, they go after giants and whatnot. And then the next session is the great, you idiots. Look at all the mess you've made. How do we veil this out? How do we hide this body? What do we do with it? Is there a way that we can use the fact that we've got, you know, this dead giant, this dead Nephilim and this Loch Ness monster head and, and whatever else is, can, can we then use this to, uh, to advance our, our character goals or at least build cool monster hunting gear for the next, uh, mission out? Right. And it won't be entirely without conflict because, of course, there'll be some other organization that's trying to get a hold of your, uh, cryptid bits mm-hmm. and of course things that uh if our cryptids are of a biblical or, or metaphysical nature uh they might not always stay dead and that brings us all the way around at the beginning of the podcast what if you pick up a dead phoenix and you've got a you've got a ticking clock because you got to get it in the liquid nitrogen down at area 51 before it uh blows sets up on fire <laughs> and a whole new phoenix uh, comes out and then not to mention the the hilarious comedy where you have to keep explaining we're from the phoenix project no the other one no no yeah <laughs> we're yeah we're, we're, we're the cool phoenix project not not the well secret assassins is pretty cool but yes but we're the the fun well, the less murdery one, one. The we less don't have assassin one. on the patch it's not right there 
<laughs> it's not on the job description. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the notion of a, of, of a, of a Phoenix force that has to hunt down a Phoenix. That's pretty fun. Yes. And, uh, again, as you say, handle corpse disposal before it suddenly burns all of your other cryptids up. Uh, well, having circled around, having gone full circle and, uh, and re-promoted the t-shirt, it's uh, time for us to uh, sneak out of this podcast, uh, but we'll be back with uh, yet another one, including a continuation of our uh, Horror Essential series a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Earn our giant gratitude by keeping his podcast extant alongside such esteemed backers as Joe Webb, Ludovic Chavant, Monster Talk, Oren Gashuri, and Thomas Edward. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our aforementioned reluctant Phoenix design. Oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>